Simple Beep, Episode 85, Apple Kremlinology. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And as we are recording, we are in high Apple event season. It's late in the month of September. People have new iPhones in their hands. We're expecting another Apple event maybe next month. And so we have one point of follow-up that ties into that. And then we're going to be talking a lot about Apple events later in this episode. So for the follow-up, as I mentioned, we're recording this in September 2019. The iPhone 11 and Pro and Pro Max have just been announced. And there's a bunch of new camera features in them, as there are every year in iPhones. That's basically just to be expected at this point. But there's a lot of new camera software. Basically, the camera app has been rewritten for new features on these phones. And I'm not sure how much this is trickling out to other phones as well. But anyway, the thing that caught our ears during the keynote was the use of a particular phrase, which was quick take, which I think its new iteration is it's replacing burst mode in the camera app so that if you keep pushing on the shutter, you get video instead of a burst of photos. And they called this feature quick take. And we went, wait, what? And then it actually appeared on a slide and now on the website as well. And yes, it is camel cased quick take. And of course, we know that name from elsewhere. It's the name of Apple's very first digital camera product back in the 90s when they were making standalone digital cameras, which some people could argue the the iPhones are kind of standalone digital cameras with a bunch of other features at this point. (laughs) But the coolest thing that happened with this was uh, Blake Patterson put together a photo set on Flickr that we'll link to in the show notes where he got out his QuickTake 200 and he went and took a bunch of photos in 2019, which is a little bit weird. (laughs) But on the other hand, you look at these photos and there's part of you that goes, oh, well, it could just be like a really bad thumbnail (laughs) of a photo. And then you look at it a little bit closer and you go, no, that has that sort of distinct look of very early image sensing technology. And my favorite one, this is probably the one we'll link to directly, is he took a picture of the Apple website promoting the iPhone 11 Pro on his iPhone 10 laying on a table. That's the content of the photo. And he took that with a quick take 200 and uploaded it to the internet for all to see. It's it's a really cool uh, use of Apple technology to span decades. And they're all linked by this cute little marketing term. That little bit you said about uh, the quality of the image kind of evoking a certain point in time in digital photography is kind of a fun segue uh, for the main portion of this episode where we talk about like rumors and specifically rumors stoked by Apple in their invitations. But there was also a distinct time where um, there were blurry camera shots like camera phone or poor handheld digital camera shots of like someone in an elevator in Shenzhen who saw like the iPhone 3G and in, slipping into someone's pocket or 
an, an unreleased iPod at the Caltrain coming away from Cupertino and things like that. So yeah, everything in this episode is just tying together. <laughs> yeah, all those spy cam shots that uh, we that is also follow up because we talked about those in uh, our rumor mill episode. But yeah, those were all of that era where it was not presumed that everyone had a high quality digital camera in their pocket. Whereas today, that's literally the case. One other item of follow-up, we are big fans of the software put out by Ambrosia Software here on this show. We've dedicated an episode to Escape Velocity, and it's come up many other times. Uh, one thing we, I think, have talked about in follow-up in other episodes is like, maybe the company has shut down or their website has been down. And then, oh, it's back up. Uh, now it's down again. Uh, it seems to be that Ambrosia as a company and certainly as their public-facing website uh, is down for good because it has been down for a while. And I think people have attempted to get in contact with Andrew Welch, the CEO or maybe former CEO. Um, and it just all signs are starting to point to Ambrosia no longer exists. However, uh, there are many people out there, not just Ed and myself, who are uh, who remain gigantic fans of the company and their products so uh, a couple dedicated Redditors are uh, banding together and trying to um, preserve some of Ambrosia's website downloads, especially Escape Velocity plugins. And there's even a team of Redditors who are trying to rewrite Escape Velocity Override from scratch using modern rendering technologies like Metal uh, to make it available on modern platforms. And so we'll put a couple of links in the show notes. Uh, one is to ambrosiaarchive.com, which is kind of what it says. An extremely bare bones site. <laughs> Speaking of things that look like they're right out of the 90s. It's basically just browsing the directories of the server. Like there's no HTML, no CSS. No, it's just straight up Apache. And then uh, we'll also put a link to a Reddit thread where uh, these uh, these two programmers are laying out their plans for bringing back Escape Velocity Override, what it means for maybe the original Escape Velocity, Nova, um, the expanded universe, as it were. And it sounds like they may have the blessing of Andrew Welch, or I should say uh, the promise from him that he won't come after them for using the name. Right, like confirmation that these are truly abandonware. Yes, yeah. Um, and last I checked, I think they were still waiting for any kind of word from Matt Birch. But uh, it could be something to keep an eye on. I think they said if they get a clear go-ahead, they'll do some crowdfunding on Kickstarter. So it'll be something to support, should it show. Yeah, and on this new archive site, there's a whole giant folder of Escape Velocity plugins. The one major thing that's been lost here is that on the old Ambrosia site, they had all of these add-on downloads and like descriptions for them that were... I think, submitted by the authors. And I think th those were on dynamically generated pages and may not be well archived. I think that's the thing that's primarily gone away. And of course, the games themselves, I think, are basically all available at Macintosh Garden uh, and those sorts of resources. So the software lives on, but there is a piece of the web history of Ambrosia that is no longer accessible. One other interesting thing, right as this was going on and we were adding it to our notes for follow-up, just a couple days after people had noticed and were talking about the site being down seemingly permanently, uh, the Hector D. Bird 
Twitter account (laughs) (laughs) tweeted for the first time in four months. Um, Not about Ambrosia at all, but it is kind of heartwarming to see that, you know, turns out parrots have extremely long lifespans and Hector has, Captain Hector has outlived the company of Ambrosia Software. There's the silver lining in all of this. (laughs) So now let's move on to our main topic for this episode, which we are calling Apple Kremlinology. And we are not the first people to apply this term, as we'll get into here. But I think that it's a particularly apt term. And what we mean by it is looking for little clues about what Apple is doing. They're such a notoriously secretive organization that there are so many things that we don't know, but want to know. And I think that it's probably best to start off with just what the term means in the wider world and in history, uh, and why it's called this, and why we're then now applying it to Apple. So, from Wikipedia, which is never wrong, but actually I think in this case has a really good summary of this. (laughs) During the Cold War, lack of reliable information about the country, that being the USSR, forced Western analysts to read between the lines and to use the tiniest tidbits, such as the removal of portraits, the rearranging of chairs, positions at the reviewing stand for parades in Red Square, the choice of capital or small initial letters in phrases such as First Secretary, the arrangement of articles on pages of the party newspaper, and other indirect signs to try to understand what was happening in internal Soviet politics. In popular culture, the term is sometimes used to mean any attempt to understand a secretive organization or process, this case Apple, such as plans for upcoming products or events by interpreting indirect clues. And we're going to talk about a lot of those indirect clues. And like so many things in the Apple community, this is an idea that has also been written about by John Gruber over at Daring Fireball. Uh, He's brought up the term Kremlinology a couple times. And in the uh, his post about WWDC 2012, he even says, I've long compared Apple punditry to Cold War era Kremlinology to predict or analyze an opaque secretive organization. You've got to read between the lines of the few things they do say, and you've got to know how to interpret silence. Uh, so again, uh, the bulk of our episode today is going to be on event invitations, uh, which sometimes is just about the timing of the events, like now Apple's in a certain cadence where iPhones come out in September, as I'd said at the top of this episode, or if there's a certain phrase or even imagery in the invitation itself that hints at what is to come. And something that uh, I hadn't thought about and doesn't totally fit in the context of this episode being for like product announcements. Um, Ed, do you remember the like the legal canary that a bunch of websites, including Apple.com, had for a while? It's it's something like you cannot say that the United States government has subpoenaed you for information, but Apple and a bunch of other websites used to have a footer somewhere in like a privacy policy or terms of service that said they had not been yet subpoenaed or requested to hand over information by the United States government. Right. So this is out of, I think, post 9-11 legislation where there are effectively under seal secret uh, national security 
orders that can be given to companies to procure information, especially to procure information uh, you know, for, for computer companies or cloud companies to procure information pertaining to a particular user. Um, and you are not allowed to disclose exactly that you have been given these kind of, these kind of orders. And I think the thing that pretty much everyone settled on, their lawyers decided it was okay and nobody was getting disappeared over it was that if you had never done it, you could say it's never happened, right? Like there's no law against you saying that you've never been. Um, but then you couldn't say exactly how many, and they started doing ranges of like one to 25, 26 to 50, and then like putting those in these annual reports. But for there was a brief moment where someone realized that this little sentence, uh, Apple or, you know, insert company name here has never. Uh, received one of these requests for information from the government. Uh, they, someone who was keenly watching where, wherever this appeared realized it was no longer there and put two and two together to be like, aha, they can no longer say that they haven't. Ergo, they have. That's probably the most direct like government and political <laughs> tie-in between Apple and uh, this like the origins of Kremlinology. Let's uh, let's go into some more fun stuff like. <laughs> Keynotes and product announcements. Yeah, let's talk about iPods. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to choose the original iPod as kind of the starting point for this episode because uh, it was probably the first major product announcement that Apple had to invite the press. Like, come see. We're going to do something. Of course, there are big products and big launches like the original Mac, the iMac. But this was probably done in a more direct communication thing like uh We'll target David Pogue, Walt Mossberg. We'll just say like, hey, make sure you come to, <laughs> to this little presentation we're having. Well, there's Jason Snell's story about the original iMac launch where they had been they had been sending out these pro forma letters like, hey, we're having a media event. And they're like, whatever, we're not even going to go, even though we're Macworld. Yeah. <laughs> and we're like, we'll send we'll send one or two people like whatever. It's going to be nothing and then it turns out to be the iMac and then everyone's like okay and we're waiting for the next one we're we're going to pay attention and then maybe apple even recognized uh that that a lot of people were in a similar situation and so in october 2001 uh remember the ipod was actually supposed to launch closer to the events of september 11th 2001 and then they're like well let's let's wait a little bit uh they decided to send out invitations these weren't uh the kind of email graphic attachments that we're used to in more recent times. Um, according to the Telegraph, it was a paper invitation that ostensibly was sent through the mail that uh, had the date and the time, come see uh, Apple has something to show you. But it included the phrase, hint, it's not a Mac. And so this was maybe the first major Kremlinology, what what, what could it be? Like we have to read the tea leaves, we have to think, consider all the rumors of, of what might have been coming out. Um, and of course, it ended up being the iPod, not a Mac. Yeah, I wonder to what extent there was. I, I have a feeling that the iPod was pretty heavily rumored at that point. Uh, obviously, nobody knew what it was going to look like. But the fact that a music player was a possibility was was well known. Because, of course, there were already uh, much lesser inferior predecessor slash competitors to it on the market already. Yeah, my 32 megabyte Diamond Rio. Let's move on to some other iPods because I think that these get more into the interesting 
playing with the invitation and the presentation. So I actually didn't know that this was part of the invitation, uh, but now in hindsight makes so much sense. Um, so there was an event that was scheduled for September of 2005. So this is four years later. The iPod is, is taking off. The iPod mini is extremely successful. And the event graphic that went out for this uh, fall music event, as they were known then, says, a thousand songs in your pocket changed everything. Agreed. Here we go again. And it just has a picture of a denim pocket. And you think, okay, that makes total sense. Uh, you use the word pocket. But then you realize that it is the right-hand pocket of a pair of jeans, including the change pocket, which is, of course, what Steve Jobs used for the reveal of the iPod Nano, which I think to this day is still the greatest product reveal of all time. You ever wonder what this pocket is for? And then he pulls out a fully functional iPod from it. Um, just genius. And the fact that they were so confident. I mean, everyone talks about that particular product announcement as one of Apple's most confident moves, where they they literally killed the iPod mini right then. They said, this is our top selling product of all of our products and we're not selling it anymore. <laughs> um, they were that bold with the product decision and they were bold enough to even, in hindsight, tip their hand in the invitation. We're not the first people to think about making this uh, history of Apple invitations. So uh, there are a couple places like The Verge has one. There's a website called Oak Innovations that has a, a gallery of these invitations. And so the provenance of the image is not always 100% clear because certainly in recent years, and I think even at some point back then, maybe the homepage of Apple.com would include this image as they got closer to the event. Or in the downtime when they would pull down the entire store. Or maybe sometimes these might have been just the kind of image attachments or the formatting in the literal invitation sent to members of the press that happened to get leaked and republished on places like Mac Rumors and later and Gadget, etc. Um, but yeah, either way, Apple knew that this this image would get out in advance of the event itself and was basically telegraphing the the brilliant move that they were going to make to announce the product. This is a really cool one. And only a month later, uh, there was a another event um, that was still in the kind of like the media uh, arm of Apple. This is kind of like the period that we're in right now, because we everybody knew that there was going to be a September event. And we presume that there's going to be an October event. Still not announced for 2019 as we record. But yeah, so uh, in the mid-2000s, the September event was music. It was iPods. It was uh, updates to iTunes, the store, etc. Um, and then whenever there was a little something left over, there would be an October event that wasn't necessarily Max. It was continuing the music and the media story. So in that same year, 2005, there was an October event. And the imagery accompanying the invitation was red theater curtains and that classic Apple phrase, one more thing. And again, this is one of those things that's like, in hindsight, yeah, they're they're more or less telling you what what's going to come, uh, especially when you consider that they're theater curtains, movie theater especially, 
because the main thing released at this October event was the fifth generation iPod or more colloquially the iPod video. So the funniest thing to me about this is uh, I just looked up the 2005 September event, the music event where they uh, released the Nano, and then they had this additional event a month later. One more thing. I thought, well, gee, I wonder if they actually might have had time to do a real one more thing in that September event. Well, maybe it went really long. You know, maybe it hit two hours, which is what we're used to now. Nope, it was 48 minutes long. Oh. <laughs> so this that one actually could have been just one more thing. The very next year, there was another October event where the invitation similarly hinted at uh, visual media. The invitation graphic said, it's showtime. And it had the Apple logo and the Apple logo had uh, spotlights thrown on it. And again, in hindsight, uh, this is very obvious. I don't know if it was something that was heavily rumored, but the the main introduction of this event was the addition of movies on the iTunes store. So much like a Hollywood premiere with a red carpet, there are spotlights shooting off into the sky. Well, this is the premiere of movies in general at Apple's uh, online store. So uh, another one of those things where it's like, if you kind of have an idea of where Apple's going, you can probably guess what's going to happen. And if not, you at least see very clearly what they were going for with the benefit of hindsight. This is pretty funny. I was just looking. It's like, it's showtime. I feel like Apple has done this for other movie-related events. And so I was like, wait, did they do that for the services event this past spring? And uh, with, like, spotlights and everything? Uh, No, what they did was they had an animation in the invitations that were digital that were sent out to people. And they started with just black background, white Apple logo, and said, it's showtime, although with a space in the word showtime this time. Inconsistencies. Yeah, over 14 years, I'll let it slide. But the the other funny thing here is that I found a blog post, uh, Apple announces March 25th event, and the person has chosen as the hero image the earlier version of the one that says it's showtime, and then embeds a tweet from Matthew Panzerino that has the actual one. That's funny. <laughs> so yes, they are they are that close to each other. So like I said, that one from this year was pretty much just an Apple logo. Uh, We got a similar one like that where Apple did not want to reveal much of anything. Uh, And that was in 2007 for the announcement of the iPhone. In this one, it has an Apple logo with like, it's like a solar eclipse with like coronal flares coming off of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it says the first 30 years were just the beginning. Welcome to 2007. But that is it. There are, you know, for the for the Kremlinologists here, there is not much to go on. You're like, well, yes, check. It is 2007. Um, there's an Apple logo. Good. Uh, there's a light. Yes, the product will probably light up. Um, and that's it. And obviously, by the time that these invitations went out, there was a somewhat of a fever pitch in the rumor mill about an Apple-designed cellular phone. Yeah, if there wasn't fire, there was smoke. So maybe this could be a stretch. Like, this is Apple all but saying, like, 
yeah, you guys are really ready for something big, like a new, a whole new product line. We're all but saying like, yep, there's going to be something big. We won't tell you exactly what it is, but it's probably just as big or even bigger than what you're expecting. The next one I want to talk about is, um, it's a little interesting because it's for WWDC 2007. And I don't know if this is true or not, but this was the earliest one, the earliest WWDC invitation I could find that had this sense of playful uh, graphic imagery instead of just like, here are the dates, here are the times. <laughs> Please come to WWDC, register here. Um, and this invitation uh, is the time machine interface that was introduced in Leopard. Um, and so it's if you've ever accidentally or on purpose invoked time machine, <laughs> you know that your current finder window kind of uh, mirrors itself all the way back into a, a vanishing point on the solar horizon. Your hard drive spins up, the interface locks up for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And uh, so they've replicated that here with calendars, the frontmost one being June 2007 with the week of WWDC highlighted. What I find interesting about this is that this is not like tipping their hand at anything because Leopard had been um, announced and previewed at the previous WWDC 2006. So this wasn't showing anything new necessarily. Um, and maybe it was intended to hint at uh, Leopard might be getting released, <laughs> maybe even like the hint of a release date. But famously, this is the same year as um, the iPhone is going to be released, I think, at the, the end of that summer. And as we found out, uh, Apple had to divert resources away from the Leopard team to ensure that the iPhone could finish on time. Um, I saw some commentary on the imagery in this um, invitation. Uh, clearly, the dates of WWDC are highlighted, um, but the fact that they're highlighting calendars in general was hinting at maybe not just the hard release date for leopard itself but maybe that uh people would get like hard release dates for the iphone's general availability um i think that's probably reading too far into it i think i think that this is just uh apple having fun yeah it, with the save the date language it's like look we know it's been a while we're still working on it don't you want an iphone <laughs> You're all here for the iPhone SDK that's not here. <laughs> that one did eventually come uh, after a few months. And this was one of those things where, like, like we said, the whole premise of reading between the lines on these invitations, trying to interpret them, is that Apple isn't going to give anything away, except when they do. And like that is also part of their strategy. And I think, you know, I didn't live through the Cold War. I'm not a Cold War history buff, but I imagine that was the same way with the Soviets, with the Kremlin. Like, it wasn't like they never put out actual releases of, of information. They were carefully controlled, and it was the times where it was, you know, most expedient to them. And the iPhone SDK, in Apple's case, was one of these, where People had been clamoring for it. It People thought that it was going to come at that 2007 WWDC, and it didn't. And they knew that they needed to do it, and they knew that they knew the timeline on which it was coming. And so for a February 2008 event, 
it just says right on the invitation, iPhone software roadmap. And uh, it's in true skeuomorphic fashion, a folding roadmap. <laughs> I, I mean, not like a metaphorical project roadmap. Like it has a compass rose on it and there's water and roads and parks. And actually it looks a lot like Apple Maps does still today, even though they hadn't designed that yet. <laughs> um, and it's got a big highway running through the middle and the highway is labeled SDK. <laughs> uh, and there's like an exit sign that says software update. So that was one of the ones where they said, look, we're going to make a cute graphic, but we want you to know exactly what this is about. And uh, before we go on, I do want to address that immediately the month before, in January 2008, there at uh, Macworld, Apple released the MacBook Air. And I think there had been rumblings that there was going to be some kind of... Ultrabook wasn't even the preferred word yet, but that... Like, no, this was Netbook era. Netbook. Yeah, that's the word I was thinking of. Like some kind of sub-notebook. Yeah, the distinction with the Ultrabooks was that they went to basically full-size screens and keyboards as opposed to the like seven and eight inch netbooks. Yeah. And uh, the invitation to the Macworld keynote was uh, captioned or included in the imagery. There's something in the air also typeset in the myriad font, but like an ultra lightweight. Uh, I don't think anyone had the product name MacBook air on their radar, but this is another one of those like in hindsight of course, course that's that's what they're going for right you only get to pull this kind of trick once you can't say there's something in the air when you're going to announce the ipad air right (laughs) like it just doesn't doesn't work that way um they they got to use the clever phrase once and looking at it it's also got the um the, the apple logo in that one is like a brushed metal so that i think at the time accurately could have been interpreted as a hint towards the notebook line because that was the only major Apple product at that point that was in that finish. Before we move any further along, I have to talk about the bizarre invitation to WWDC 2008. I had no recollection of this. I don't know how I didn't have any recollection of this because it's completely strange. Yeah. The... The tagline for the event is a landmark event, period, in more ways than one, period. And then it is like the classic look of the Golden Gate Bridge back into San Francisco from like Marin. But there's two Golden Gate Bridges. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know why. I don't know why either. So like, I think what they meant to allude to and what ended up being the two big things coming out of that WWDC were the iPhone 3G, a new hardware model, and the iPhone App Store kind of launching at the same time, the new software distribution model, uh, the fully fleshed out SDK, even after that roadmap event a couple months uh, earlier. So you've got like the, the metaphor is like you've got your two paths of you can develop for the iPhone OS platform where you can develop for the Mac OS 10 platform. Oh, I like that view of it. But still, it's just it's just bizarre. And the more I look at it, the less the quality looks good for 2008. Maybe it's just a bad image that we found um, 
you know, reprocessed through uh, these sites and galleries that's been published on. But <laughs> it makes me think, obviously, it's not as bad quality, but like something about the rocks and the bridges, it makes me think of like an escape velocity planet. <laughs> like a Kai's Power Tools Golden Gate Bridge. It's better than that, but like... <laughs> Like, welcome to the Mirror Universe. Here we have two Golden Gate Bridges. (laughs) Like, clearly, someone thought that it was representative of something on a metaphorical level. Like, there's no way that you create that artwork without some kind of intention. But then the event passes and we don't go, oh, well, it was the pocket where he did, oh, that's so clever. No, it's like, I I don't know what they were seeing there. Yeah. So now we can move on to uh, late 2008. I will say at least if this is not my favorite for like the actual image and the the hints itself, I remember the the absolute fervor that this invitation caused. And this was the October 2008 event, um, which ended up being for the new unibody MacBook Pros. Uh, like we said earlier, there had been a little bit of a cadence where it's like there's a September event that's music and iPods, and then there's uh, a little bit more maybe, you know, a different iPod, et cetera. But this unibody MacBook Pro invitation, um, <laughs> here's a spotlight again. It's um, it's like the lid of an Apple notebook, which is not a surprise at this point. We have the, um, the aluminum MacBook Pros, which had the design language of like the 12 and 17, and then later 15 aluminum PowerBook G4s. Um, so it's like a spotlight shining from the top right against one of these closed lids, of the aluminum Apple laptops. And it says the spotlight turns to notebooks. So on the face of it, it's pretty clear. There are going to be new notebooks. They're going to look like this. There are going to be aluminum rectangles. Yeah. They're going to have a glowing Apple logo in the middle. But people went nuts. And I don't remember if it was in gadget or one of the rumor sites, but um, since the entirety of the lid is discernible, And we have an idea that we know how big these glowing Apple logos are. People started doing all their trigonometry. They can bust it out like we're never going to have to use this in real life. Aha. But today we will to try and figure out if it was some, you know, new previously unreleased screen size. Um, And maybe the aspect ratio is a little bit different than we're used to with the 12, 15 and 17. But like the point of the event was I think they had like the really sweet NVIDIA graphics chips, um, new architecture architectures um the displays were like nicer brighter leds and of course the unibody construction was the highlight but all everyone wanted to talk about was like i think there's going to be a new screen size this this is my headcanon on this invitation is that it looks really straightforward like it says the spotlight turns to notebooks i my headcanon is that there was an internal meeting where they were doing this design and someone had just mocked up the graphics and like put no phrase on it or something else. And they're like, doesn't this look great? It's hinting at what we're showing, like send it out. And someone's like, uh, people are going to freak out and think it's a tablet. If we don't say that it's a notebook, Uh. (laughs) right? Like a year and a half pre iPad. So they're like, just, just spell it out for them this time. So another one where the product imagery is pretty much right front and center came in the next year for WWDC, where there was no weird art. Um, It just shows a picture of an iPhone. 
and it says, make your mark here, WWDC. And those are all, all of those letters of that phrase uh, are on app icons on the home screen. And you think, okay, yeah, it's an iPhone 3G. That's what everybody has. But then they also released the iPhone 3GS at that event. So obviously it played a major role in what they were talking about. But from the outside, they're completely indistinguishable. We were just talking about the iPad. So I think it's worth talking about its uh, product introduction event invitation. Because even in hindsight, I don't think there's really any hint that it's going to be the long rumored tablet. It's a bunch of spray paint, you know, like uh, dots with uh, some paint drippage and the Apple logo is white and centered on top of all of it. And the text is simply come see our latest creation. But what I think is worth talking about from like a different perspective of Kremlinology or seeding information is I think famously uh, someone from inside Apple tried to plant within uh, targeted leaks that I think ended up being published in the Wall Street Journal that whatever Apple was going to announce, if it was indeed the rumored tablet, was going to be a thousand dollar product. Um, because I think like whoever whoever was the recipient of this leak ran with it and published a little news item about that, which made the effect ever so greater when Steve Jobs was able to say, and it starts at four hundred and ninety nine dollars. Because I think if you go back and watch that that keynote, people's audible response to it being 500 bucks is is kind of a shock <laughs> for a v- seemingly very long time steve jobs actually puts the number 999 up on a slide and is walking around talking and then he does a like brand new keynote effect where it gets smashed by 499 so <laughs> <laughs> but as for the actual like this imagery with the invitation they used it as their opening, as as they often do. Um, like now, where now that we're in the age of Apple Keynote live streams, instead of just following along frantically refreshing Gizmodo or whatever, when they're like the stream is live but the event hasn't started, they'll use the imagery from the invitation, which makes sense. It's their theme for the for the show. And for the iPad introduction, they did that, and they had this paint splatter thing. And to me, it reminds me a lot of what they were doing with late iPod commercials, where they kind of transitioned from the silhouettes on the solid color backgrounds with absolutely no detail. Like, there there were no world background elements. And then they started moving to ones where... They had actual famous musicians included in the ads, and then they had to like bring some definition out of the silhouette so that you could like you could actually tell that it was Eminem or Bono and not just an animation of them playing with their music. They actually filmed them for the ad, and then some background elements were included. I seem to remember there was one where things were sort of splattery. I think so too. It might have been the Eminem one to maybe stereotypically or not go with the like the hip hop aesthetic of like street art and and grunge going on in the background. Right. So this reminds me of that. And then they take that slide down and they never look back. It's an hour and 10 minutes of just talking about and demoing the iPad. 
There's no other product in this event. It's just wall-to-wall iPad. And so it's almost like a head fake that you're thinking, well, it's it's iPod-ish, but I don't know what it's going to be. Something else. (laughs) I think the lasting image of that presentation was Steve Jobs kicking back in a leather easy chair uh, to, to because like that's where the iPad was supposed to live. Like you you had a laptop or a desktop on your desk. You had an iPhone or an iPod in your pocket and the iPad was for the couch, like an arm's length using uh, user experience. Um, you know, I'm no designer. I'm no genius. I'm, <laughs> I'm just a fan, but I think it might have been fun to have just like the image of that couch or that chair rather. So once we've uh, passed the iPad, we're getting into some more recent events. So I think we'll uh, we'll do a little bit more pick and choose here. Um, I have one that I definitely wanted to talk about from 2012. And this was the one that I thought of immediately when we started talking about doing this topic because I, I don't know, maybe I just got lucky, <laughs> but I called this one. <laughs> and this was the uh, 2012 WWDC introduction of the Retina MacBook Pro, which was a little bit of a surprise. So earlier in that year, in 2012, they had introduced the Retina iPad which was the most pixels anyone had ever seen on a device ever. Uh, Taking that incredible 300 plus PPI of the iPhone 4 screen and scaling it up to nine inches was just, people were shocked that they were even able to pull off that technology. And everyone said, well, of course, you know, we hope and wish and believe that the natural progression of this will be that eventually all of our devices will have such good resolution, but it's taken them four and a half years to get this from iPhone screen to the iPad screen. Surely it will be another couple of years before we can get this to laptop screens, much less the desktop. Um, but at the end of that Retina iPad event, There was one slide. It's literally the slide. I'll put an image in the, in the show notes. It's the slide where Tim Cook has clicked the last button on on his clicker and he's waving and walking off the stage. And just before this, he said, like, you know, it's a, it's a big year and we're just getting started. And they put up this slide on the screen. I go, hang on, I know what they're doing here. Because what they had done was for the Retina... So what's on the screen behind him is there's an Apple logo. It has rainbow colors, but not in the stripes. It's more in a like a color wheel kind of fashion. And they look like they're kind of done in like paint strokes. And then the background, you might think that it's white, but it's more of like a silver aluminum. And I looked at this and I went, he just said that they're going to do retina notebooks this year. (laughs) And the reason for this was that the icon that they were using to represent retina screens from the iPhone 4 and then again in the promotions for the brand new retina iPad 
was this image of an eye close up. And in the white part of the eye, instead, it was this color wheel. Um, and then it had this texture of the, um, well, I guess it's not in the white part of the eye. It's in the iris, um, in the iris of the eye. And then it has that texture like that part of your eye does. And they had put basically that same imagery on the back of a notebook. And I went, they're doing it. And then three months later, sure enough, they announced that they were doing 15-inch retina screens, and people were extremely surprised. And I was not extremely surprised, but I was very happy about it. Yeah, when you put this uh, this final slide with Tim Cook waving goodbye next to the icon for retina display, as you've done in our show notes, like it's it's the exact, like all the colors... It's it's almost like they've been flipped horizontally the the way that the, the color wheel progresses. Sure, sure. Yeah. But it's it's like the very same thing. That's it's such a good call by you. I wouldn't have been so confident if he hadn't been like, ha 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 ha. Look at this. Look, this is just the tip of the hardware iceberg. I mean, like he basically said that in the presentation. Uh, if he had just said, well, and that's what we have to show you for today. Thanks and bye. Like I wouldn't have thought anything of it. But the the presentation there, that's one of those cases where it really did seem like they were dropping hints. That's really cool. I, we, I wonder if there are any other instances of this. So like to be clear, there is an invitation graphic for the WWDC 2012 keynote where the Retina MacBook Pro was announced, but it is not this same slide that caused you to figure it out. No, it's like a... It's like an Apple logo made out of overlapping translucent app icons. So yeah, this is like true Kremlinology where they're putting clues where we're not even conditioned to be looking for them. (laughs) (laughs) Before we move on uh, forward in time from WWDC 2012, I do want to uh, make mention of the October 2010 event that was called Back to the Mac. Um, So this was the text that came with the invitation. Um, It was another clear blatant this is like like the spotlight turns to mac notebooks this says back to the mac but the imagery in this one might be one of the most blatant i don't think it's the most blatant because there's one coming up <laughs> that's, that's just stupid but this one is a uh like a, a flat piece of brushed aluminum with a cutout for the apple logo and it's almost as if like the apple logo cutout is swiveling uh, across an axis and revealing that behind this piece of aluminum is a lion. It's not simply the fact that it's like the the hardware represented by brushed aluminum, and this ended up being the event of the completely redesigned MacBook Air, but it's also the next major version of Mac OS X, which was, of course, Lion. And also at this point, they, I was just double-checking my timelines, but yes, the Back to My Mac feature did already exist at this point because that was a Leopard feature. So they were additionally riffing on language that was already present on the Mac side. But now let's go forward uh, to September 2012. Uh, This used to be the iPod, the music event, but now this is very clearly the iPhone event. The invitation image for this is so dumb. And I remember it angered people like not only because like it's clear what they're announcing, but because the reveal of what they're going to announce also made a lot of people angry. Um, This is 2012 Right before this iPhone event, the current model is the 4S. So we have a little bit of a pattern. 3G gave way to 3GS. 4 gave way to 4S. 
Next is V. I know how this works. <laughs> exactly. Um, even though the 4S runs um, iOS 5 on the A5 processor, like those aren't keeping up with the, the product names. So there is a little bit of a divide in all the rumors. Is it going to be the iPhone 5? Is it going to be the iPhone 6? Because it will be running iOS 6 uh, on presumably the A6 processor, et cetera, et cetera. But no, the event simply has the date that the uh, the product announcement was going to be, which was the 12th of September. So it's just big giant Helvetica 1-2. And not even on like a calendar page like some of their other ones have. Yeah, it's just on the like the shiny white table that Web 2.0 was on. Oh, it's in Johnny's room. Oh, that's right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But the shadow that these two numerals are casting is forming a five in in a way that doesn't make sense. But (laughs) it's uh, this is, I think, the most blatant. It's going to be called iPhone 5. Um, look at this stupid invitation. <laughs> well, I think this is another thing that Gruber and many other commentators have talked about, which is even in the past couple of years where we've had catastrophic leaks from the perspective of products existence or product features or entire software leaking out, you know, system software for products that don't exist like the HomePod <laughs> The thing that is not always known until the very end, the thing that Apple has complete control over, is the product names. Basically, until the boxes are printed, they have complete and utter control over it. And so this is one of those cases where they're like, look, we've made our decision. This is one of the things that usually we get to surprise you with, but this time we're going to tell you up front. It's five. And then there are later cases where people get so used to uh, a name for something that they didn't even think that they needed a name for. And then it doesn't need, require a product box. And they go, uh, it's called Catalyst. We, we came up with that yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> um, this, this event for the iPhone 5 also is relevant to this show, Simple Beep, because Ed and I uh, had a shortly lived podcast before Simple Beep called Big Cats in Space. Um, please don't go looking for it. <laughs> you can't find the audio files for it. Too bad. <laughs> um, but our very first episode of that show was in reaction to the introduction of the iPhone 5. So now that we're in that, uh, at least for, for our show, modern era, is there anything else that we want to touch on from invitations from then to the present? I want to briefly... Touch on WWDC 2016 only because uh, it was another one of these like it's not just the imagery accompanying the invitation. So I just opened this one up and it's pretty spare. It just says WWDC 16 and an Apple logo. But the typography is interesting because it's in San Francisco Mono. And this is one of the things that especially recently when Apple has gone to all custom typography as opposed to using things like Helvetica and Myriad, that it's not it's not even really Kremlinology. It's that it's just good branding and unification of design language that Apple will always use its appropriate typography in the marketing materials for the products that it goes with. And that 
can include that can bleed over a little bit into invitations that go with events or certain products where they will preview some bit of typography or the choice of style of typography is indicative of where they are going with the design language. Look at the official icons for recent uh, versions of iOS, Mm -hmm. where with iOS 7, you had the almost illegibly thin (laughs) Helvetica Ultralight 7, and over time, the just the number, this colored number on a white background, has gotten thicker as that matches the design in the software. And I think the most recent two versions, 12 and 13, have the rounded variant, which was added to the system software at that time. And so these things kind of go together. So WDC 16, San Francisco Mono, sure enough, that font is part of Xcode, part of what they're pushing at that event. So that's one thing where it's just like, it's not even hinting, it's just like acknowledgement that the invitations themselves are marketing material. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. So yeah, so the image itself doesn't hint at anything, uh, but Apple at this point has other avenues with which to dispense cheeky information. And of course, it's uh, it's one of their cheekiest avenues, uh, for better, for worse, and that's Siri. Um I think this is notable not because it's the first time that Siri was kind of self-aware about the the secrecy of Apple and the Kremlinology of uh, rumor mills and event invitations, but in W at WWDC 2016, the major version of Mac OS that was released was Sierra, and one of its tentpole features was Siri comes to the Mac. So it was funny that um, if you asked Siri on your iOS device leading up to WWDC for any kinds of uh, hints, or even if you referenced WWDC, Apple had seeded Siri's responses with uh, you know nothing that would hint at anything. But the fact that Siri got into the, the WWDC rumor mongering uh, maybe at a very high meta level, some kind of hint that Siri was coming to the Mac. So they had done this previously in 2015 as well in a overt way where the invitation said, hey, Siri, give us a hint. Yeah. But in that invitation, there was a hint embedded in the invitation itself, which is that it's this like close-cropped view of the Apple logo, but it's also bleeding into this waveform and that was the new visual language for Siri in that update. So yeah, obviously there are many more events uh, in between some of that we've covered and certainly since the last one that we just covered. Uh, but again, like if you have a favorite or if we missed one that's like was just too obvious and needs to be discussed, definitely let us know. But for now, I think we want to move on to a different form of uh, hinting at a product's purpose or market fit or something else. Yeah, so we've been talking about the invitations that Apple has put out, which they have to do, right? They have to get the the, the press to the events. They have to uh, make this clear. But there are other hints that come out that are not deliberately. These are more in the sense of leaks or or rumors. And this is in the realm of Apple code names. And of course, the whole purpose of code names is to keep products under wraps. Uh, 
yes, in the case that a code name for a project gets out into the wider world, but even in the case where within Apple, not everybody knows everything that's going on. Uh, there are probably, you know, maybe three or four people, <laughs> maybe just Tim, who know, you know, what is going on in every new product development. And so you need code names internally so that even as people are talking in the sort of safe zone of within Apple, that people who are working on one project aren't necessarily divulging what it is to people who are working on a different project. So this is common practice in in big companies and has been practice at Apple forever uh, as not just uh, for this practical purpose, but also as something fun that they get to do with these names that are meant to only be internal, but many of them are now known to the wider world. Um, so they're not, you know, they're not weird, except for a couple, <laughs> which we'll get to maybe. But it's interesting to see how these things are viewed. It gives maybe a little bit of a lens into uh, the character of the different product teams, uh, what kind of things they're interested in, maybe outside of technology as well. And then in a few cases, it is actually maybe possible to glean some information on the outside uh, just by getting a code name to fall into your lap. So if you want to be a completionist, there is a surprisingly complete... <laughs> Overly complete, including some things that they call code names that are just numbers and letters. <laughs> right. Um, a list of these code names at Wikipedia. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And once again, I think we'll just kind of uh, spotlight our favorites and the ones that jumped out to us here on this episode. Yeah, a couple early ones that I think are particularly fun and give you a little bit of uh, a hint as to the 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 narrow line sometimes between code name and marketing name is that in uh, early Apple, there were a couple of other products that were given code names that were Apple varieties. Obviously, the Macintosh became the Macintosh and the Mac, and people don't even, like at this point, you don't even necessarily associate your MacBook Pro with literal fruit, <laughs> right. um, like a particular type of Apple. But there were a couple of other projects that did have this uh, kind of naming, which is, of course, you know, it's it's cute, it's clever. Uh, so one of these was uh, was Cortland, which is in fact a type of Apple, and this was the code name for the 2GS. And then one that I wanted to talk about a little bit more because I only saw a lot of information about this just recently as there's been Mac Pro Talk, um, was a canceled project that was called the Jonathan. And you also get to, when, when you look at these, you also get to think, okay, codename was Jonathan. Would they have actually called this the Jonathan? <laughs> right. Would we be talking about buying a computer called John? <laughs> Like, how weird would that be if they hadn't canceled this project? So what it was, and there are some fantastic photos in an article that we'll link to on uh, Stories of Apple. I almost called it Storie di Apple, which is their Italian site. It's a, it's a bilingual site. Um, this one is in English as well. Um, 
got some great pictures of this Jonathan computer. And the whole point was that it was a completely modular desktop computer. This is why people started thinking about it in reference to the recent Mac Pro. And the whole design was this bookshelf type of design where you could get these components that literally stacked next to each other like books. And they could be uh, CPU units, um, or they could be tape drives, hard drives, floppy drives, all kinds of different things that could go together, um, including, I think, other types of CPU, like you could put, I guess, like an Intel CPU kind of thing on it to have DOS compatibility. And it was this very ambitious project, but it was ultimately canceled uh, because it was one of these overarching architecture kind of projects that were just a little bit too ambitious. This is like this is like the uh the hardware equivalent of open dock. Yeah. Where like everything every little piece that you could want could just be brought together into a single hole within the Mac operating system, basically. Very cool concept. Never saw the light of day. But uh from its earliest beginnings until now, where it's just known as a as a cancel project, it was the Jonathan. I think those were the only two that were Apple's. I thought that there were more, but I combed through this list and didn't find any. I want to highlight uh, three code names for Mac hardware uh, from the kind of like late '80s, early '90s era. Um, the first one is for the Macintosh SE, and some of these, at least according to this Wikipedia list had multiple code names. So I'll only highlight the ones that really stood out to me. Um, but the SE had a code name of plus plus, which is a name that is, a, has a little bit of Kremlinology, uh, when you kind of put together the whole picture, the original Macintosh was followed up, uh, shortly thereafter by a model called the Macintosh plus, and not like the iPhone plus nomenclature we're used to, where it means like a little bigger. Um, this was just like a little beefier, uh, a little more higher powered. And uh, in a, if you follow a similar lineage, um, shortly after the plus line came the SE line, which, w- again, was like a similar size in a similar case, but just had beefier components. So it's plus plus. But also in computer science, plus plus is an actual uh, operation, you know, like add one. Um, so it just kind of all like these these couple concepts that compound on each other that I think like the plus plus code name if you thought about it hard enough while the product was under development, you probably could have guessed where it was going. Yeah, it's a it's a software hardware joke. The next one I want to highlight um, does not work so well in a spoken medium, but it works fantastically in the combination of seeing it written out and then hearing it. Because uh, the LC line, um, famously low cost, uh, had a code name of LC. But this is the uh, female name, L-C-E-L-S-I-E. So again, uh, if you hear someone say, like in casually in passing, "Hey, I'm working on the LC project," or I, I can't even say it with the, like the appropriate uh, emphasis, the LC project. I'm working on the LC project. Uh, you know, if you don't know what they mean by that, you hear the the human name LC. But uh, <laughs> obviously, it sounds phonetically very similar to. The two letters LC, which is what the the actual name of the product came to be. So I love the the clever interplay there. 
Yeah, that's like an internal joke where then the people who weren't working on it, they can be like, ha, we got you. We told you what our project was named all along. <laughs> and uh, the final one I want to highlight is that the PowerBook Duo line had a code name Bob W. Seems on the surface, again, like another human name. But uh, this, I guess, is a, a commonly understood acronym for best of both worlds, which is certainly what the PowerBook Duo set out to be. It was a thin and light laptop you could take away with you, and you could dock that very same machine uh, on your desk and turn it into a desktop machine. The PowerBook Duo was the best of both worlds, or Bob W. So over on the software side, there were also code names. And for many of these, code names started to get grouped together, whereas maybe in the early days of Macintosh hardware, every line was a little bit its own thing, where on the software side, especially on the Mac operating system side, there were eras of Macintosh software, and they were all related progressions from one to the next. And so they got series of related code names. So this started to come together in the macOS 8, macOS 9 era, where we were longing, longing for Copeland, which was a name that was well known to the public. Before it was even formally announced that what had come out of that failed project was going to be called macOS 8. And so this Copeland name was so well known. It, it, it stood in for what was coming next after System 7, that even when the code base for it was completely dispensed with, then other versions of macOS 8 and 9 still stuck with these classical music-themed code names like uh, Sonata and Gershwin and Rhapsody, uh, whereas they could have just said, okay, that product that project didn't happen. We shall for, forever forget Copeland and anything related to modern American classical music. Uh, but instead, they went all in that same path. This was something I did not know until looking at the list of Apple codenames on Wikipedia. We're all very well aware of codenames that turned into product marketing names in the era of Mac OS X. At first, it was Big Cats, and now it is California Landmarks. Right, and they had this weird transition where they went from, is this a code name or is this just what we're calling it? To the point that now with the, with the locations, they don't even, except when necessary, say something like Mac OS 10.15 Catalina. They just say Mac OS Catalina. But apparently around the time that uh, the big cat names became part of the public-facing marketing, like I think Jaguar, uh, Jaguar's box art actually had like Jaguar spots on it. Um, internally, Apple still had separate code names for each major release of Mac OS X, and they were all different varieties of wine, which makes sense, you know, like being close to Napa Valley and all. Um, and if you scroll up this list of Apple code names on Wikipedia, some of Apple's early Macintosh hardware also had wine code names. Here we go. So for the macOS versions, the wines are uh, Pinot, Merlot, Chardonnay, Chablis, Barolo, Zinfandel, Cabernet, Syrah. That gets you up to Yosemite. And then apparently LCAP's internal name 
was Gala. There we go. I found it. There's our Apple variety. <laughs> it was software, not hardware. Yeah, Chablis, you mentioned, was the codename for macOS 10.5, uh, which publicly was referred to as Leopard. But it was also the Macintosh SE. And there is no way, there is absolutely no way that you could run macOS 10.5 on a Macintosh SE. No way. And so then the Wikipedia page says that for uh, Sierra and beyond, that the internal code names are all mountains. But Sierra is ambiguous because it's Fuji, but that's also a type of Apple. Wow. That's a good, that's a good transition point. Do one that counts for both. And Mojave was Liberty. That's also a type of Apple. Oh, wow. High Sierra was Lobo, which not on Wikipedia, but it is on orangepippin.com. Lobo Apple. And as we know, Pippin, also a type of Apple. The Lobo is a Macintosh-style Apple from Canada, generally believed to be better all around than its parent. Oh, get out of here. So there you go. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) It's a Mac, but it's better than its parent. Uh, Just like I didn't know that Mac OS X had a whole internal codename scheme, I similarly didn't know it for iOS. I just always assumed that, you know, it was was the version number because it's kind of like it's it's pretty regularly accepted. We're going to be working on... uh, what what version is it this year? All right, we're working on that plus one for next year. But no, iOS does also have an internal code name scheme, and they are all <laughs> ski resorts. This is a new one to me. Yeah, I mean, we, we all know Apple's love of skiing, down to uh, pushing us all a uh, ski weather widget in Dashboard, which is really super unuseful when you live in Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> And it's really cool to like some of the minor point releases got their own ski resort name, uh, not just the major year over year major point releases. It's a very well thought out code name scheme. Yeah, I'm looking at I'm looking at TVOS here now. Um, and this is really kind of interesting. It's like each major version of of TVOS has a code name. So 10 was Union, 11 was Topaz. And then the rest of the cycle is named like hurricanes. <laughs> Every point release then gets a code name that goes alphabetically. So it goes Union for 10.0. And then every single patch, Bugle, Clementine, Diamond, Emerald, Florence, Gold. This gets even better in watchOS, uh, where later major releases of watchOS follow the similar, like, we'll do, we'll progress to the alphabet. Daytona, Blowfish, Catfish, Dogfish, Electric, Firefish, Ghostfish. Ghost, ghostfish is a Pokemon. <laughs> like we just said, iOS are, are all ski resorts. The very first version of watchOS, the literal 1.0, was codenamed Ski Hill, which is very funny to think about when you consider all the criticism that the very first watchOS got for being so dependent on its companion iPhone, which was running iOS. It and watchOS was the ski hill to like the iPhone's entire resort of Vail or, you know, insert entire ski resort here. So whether whether you can say it with pride or not, there is still a little bit of Kremlinology, I guess, where you can read into how these code names relate to each other. But uh, speaking of Apple Watch, I think you have uh, a good one for us to close out on here. Oh, yeah. For the for the Apple Watch hardware, this is another one of those ones. I didn't piece this together at the time, but it's a, it, it's tenuous. But I think you could have pieced together if you had known that the code name for the Apple Watch hardware project 
was Gizmo. You think, okay, well, yeah, it's like Gizmo is like synonym for gadget, right? Like it's a little wearable gadget Gizmo thing. That, that that's smart. But I'm hoping that whoever picked this had a, a, as keen of a sense of Apple history as we and our listeners do. <laughs> because I immediately thought, wait a minute. People have poked fun at the fact that Apple made a watch once before in the 90s. It was an analog watch. It showed up recently in Stephen Hackett's most recent YouTube video. It wasn't even about it, but it was just sitting there on the desk ticking away. And that watch had a squiggly yellow second hand, bright colors that matched the gizmo theme that was never released for Mac OS 8 slash Copeland. So I'm thinking, I'm hoping that that was a deliberate choice because they knew that they had made a watch previously and that it fit into the gizmo theme. I hope that this is the case. If anyone can ver- confirm or deny this, please write in. But in my mind, it it just has to be. Ed, that's the first place I've heard this theory floated out there. I really want it to be true. I can't think of <laughs> I can't think of this episode getting any better than some original Kremlinology deep digging. So I think we should wrap it up there. Perfect. But speaking of of letting us know about things, certainly let us know if anyone at Apple can confirm that the uh, the Gizmo code name goes back that far into those very specific roots. Or anyone listening, please let us know if there is one that we probably should have covered because it was just so obvious or just so important in the history or if there's something that you want to share because you have a a unique insight into it like ed did with with the gizmo by all means let us know we have a contact form on our website simplebeep.com but you can also get in touch with us on twitter at simple underscore beep you can also find each of us individually on twitter i spent way too much time on twitter today but that's a different topic (laughs) but i'm at ecormany e-c-o-r-m-a-n-y And I'm at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.